Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we've sang. Lord, we saw the words like a rose trampled on the ground that Jesus took the fall. And the Heavenly Father, we're acutely aware that we live in a fallen world, in a, in a wicked world, in an imperfect world. Lord, I'm reminded of what makes this world so wrong. And Lord, in moments of honesty, we know that it's our heart, it's our wickedness, it's our, my pride, it's my sin, it's my refusal to rely on the Holy Spirit. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, that, Lord, we would walk in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, we thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for love. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Ave Rex Hudeon, hail King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Then Pilate therefore heard that saying he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. In a perfect world, the innocent go free. 
and the wicked are judged. In an imperfect world, sometimes the innocent are condemned and the wicked go free. We move from the examination and accusation of Jesus to the scourging of Jesus and the sarcasm directed towards Jesus and the ultimate rejection of Jesus. In this chapter of John's Gospel, we're immediately drawn to the innocence of Jesus and the attempts of Pilate to release Jesus and the hardness of heart of the religious leaders. And it should cause us to ask and answer the question, the moment we look at the innocence of Jesus, it brings into stark contrast our own guilt, our own wickedness. And clearly, when we see the hardness of the hearts of the religious leaders and the angry mob, it should cause each and every one of us to evaluate our own heart. How do you soften the hearts of human beings? How do you awaken the hearts of a people whose hearts are hard towards the Lord, towards the claims of Jesus, towards the gospel of God? We remember in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 15, the warning, do not pervert justice. In Proverbs 17.5, it says, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. It was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King who awakened the conscience of a country whose soul had lapsed into a coma. And he shook us and shook us and called us to wake up. And like an Old Testament prophet, he shouted injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we live in a world where we understand the underpinnings of justice. Let me help you. What truth is to the mind, justice is to civilization. Truth gives you the ability to think and act and respond. And justice gives a civilization the opportunity to act rightly and appropriately. We live in a world where people feel free to slander Jesus. We live in a world where people feel free to reinvent Jesus, reinvent his words, reinvent his life, reinvent his death reinvent his resurrection. And the Bible teacher, Erwin Lutzer, has rightly written, quote, No other name has inspired such great devotion and so much controversy. No other person has been tweaked to serve so many different agendas. God has an agenda. The agenda, oddly enough, is to save you. It's to find a way to satisfy his own justice, but at the same time, create a mechanism where he could communicate mercy and love. We think of justice as being something right, fair, deserved, appropriate. And justice is achieved when an unjust act is Red dress and the victim feels whole again. Justice also means the offender is held accountable for his behavior. The innocent want justice. And the guilty want mercy. 
when I was driving to the church this morning, I, I was listening to the news and there was a news of some crazy fan who threw a beer can at one of the baseball players. And on national news, he gets up and he says, I am completely ashamed of myself. I am ashamed of what I've done. I'm ashamed for my team. And I'm, I'm ashamed that I did this to the particular player. And I'm ashamed and I'm ashamed and I'm ashamed. And then he goes, and that's it. I'm sorry. Done. And the player said, I hope he's held accountable. I hope that he gets what he deserves. Getting what you deserve is justice. Getting what you don't deserve is mercy. So in what world does the innocent get convicted and the condemned go free? In verse 1, look what it says. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. It's a single sentence. And the author, John, assumes that the reader understands exactly what that means. And he doesn't go into detail. Scourging often resulted in death. Long leather strips were attached to a wooden stick and that, that stick was itself wrapped with leather. And those strips, at the end of the strip was attached lead balls, pieces of broken bone or glass. And they were designed to lacerate the flesh. And Jesus, when he's brought to the praetorium, the Gabbatha, the stone, there is a pillar or a post. And Jesus' hands would have been bound and they would have been placed above the post. And it was the custom of the Romans that the presiding officer, the centurion in charge, he would preside over the punishment. In the Roman culture and in the Roman judicial system, the lashes weren't limited to 40 lashes. The lashes could be as long or as short as the presiding officer deemed fit. In Jewish trials, it allowed for 40 lashes minus one, hence the idea of 39 lashes for mercy's sake. Let me help you understand. When Jesus is tied to the post, the first blow would have literally knocked the wind out of his lungs. And he would have been gasping for air. On the second blow, it would have cut open his skin. And as the punishment proceeded, bits and pieces of flesh would have stuck stubbornly to the weights of lead or glass or bone. Cicero, Josephus, Pliny, all ancient historians write that in some cases, Vital organs would be exposed, ribs would be exposed, and the people who survived this beating would often go insane and later kill themselves. Others who survived this beating would be maimed for life. In chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate ruled, no basis for a charge. And I've already told you what that means. I find him not guilty. The scourging is technically illegal. But Jesus doesn't have Roman citizenship. Jesus doesn't have the protection of influential friends. 
And in Luke's Gospel, we're told that Pilate informed the mob that he would punish him and release him. And we're left with the impression that if Jesus could be sufficiently persecuted, sufficiently hurt, sufficiently humiliated, that somehow that would satisfy, satiate the thirst of the mob and that they could stop short of death. And in verse 2 it says, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns. In the original language, the word twisted actually means braided. It's the idea of, of taking uh, bits and pieces of the thorns and then braiding them into a crown. And they pressed it on his brow and the poison punctured his skull cap and it would have been literally pressed into the upper epidermal layer until the blood vessels burst all around his head. The average Roman soldier had zero love for a Jew. There were noble exceptions. We're not told what evil thought prompted one of the soldiers to find the bush and braid the thorns and press it, but we know that the thorns' existence owe their existence to the fact of Adam and Eve's rebellion, a curse in a garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It was their rebellion, it was their sin, it was their wickedness that tweaked the world and it began to spring thorns. And wickedness became not the exception, but the rule. And Jesus is turned into the caricature of a king with a mock crown and a mock robe. The Latin people called it sagum. It was a scarlet robe that would sometimes turn purple. It was the pride and joy of a Roman soldier and the inner elite squad that served to function as the protector of the commanding uh, governor would have had elite status. We know from Matthew and from Mark that the body of Jesus would have been shivering in seizure-like episodes, quivering and badly beaten. The soldiers took a long, slender reed and they pressed it into the shaking hands of Jesus as a kind of a mock authority. And in verse 3 they said, Ave, Rex, Udeon. Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. In the Revised Standard, it captures the Greek meaning much clearer. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Early Greek manuscripts have it. Er, kanto, pros, au, tun. It means they went up to him over and over and over and over and over. Over again. And when they weren't hitting his face with their fists, they snatched the reed from his hand and they hit him in the face and his face would start to swell. We have law enforcement officers and first responders who go to our church, firefighters, 
People who have gone under the most grisly of circumstances to the scene of an automobile accident where tons of steel have crushed against people's body and they they see the bloated condition and the Bible describes that his face was marred beyond recognition. The prophet in the spirit said that his countenance was marred such that it was hard to tell that he was even a human being. Can you imagine being so distended and so swollen? And the Scriptures give us another little bit of information both from the Old Testament and the New Testament that he didn't open his mouth and he didn't complain. And when they would strike him and when they would hit him, he wouldn't say, please, Please don't. Please stop. This is wrong. You should stop. This is wrong. Why would you continue to do this? But the Bible mentions that like a lamb is dumb before its shears, he opened not his mouth. And then in verse 4 it says, Pilate then went out again and said to him. Now remember, you notice in verse 4, Pilate then went out again. And remember from our last study, I've reminded you that the praetorium is the palatial palace of the governor. And the palatial palace of the governor would have overseen, there would have been a portico where you could go out to the outside where the religious leaders and and the mob has gathered and Pilate goes in and Pilate goes out. And then Pilate then went out. Out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate apparently, during the vicious beating, had retired back to his palace, maybe to spend some quality time with his wife. And in one more effort to free Jesus, he pronounces once again, I find no fault in him, exactly as in John chapter 18, verse 38. There is no basis for a charge. And so once again, Pilate appeals to the mob's sense of justice and of fairness and of mercy and of pity. And he appeals for for justice fall on deaf ears. In his autobiography, Martin Luther King talks about being a young man in Atlanta, Georgia. And when he was in high school, the, the bus would pick you up and he would, and, and the, the, the black students would have to go to the back of the bus to leave the front of the bus um, available for the white students. But the back of the bus would continue to fill. And even if there were no white students going to the particular place, the black student would have to stand next to the open seat. And Martin Luther King would say, my body was in the back of the bus, but my mind was in the front seat. And I knew that one day my body would join my mind and Jesus' body, broken, quivering. It says, 
Pilate. Once again, they want justice. <laughs> then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, almost certainly in Latin, Ecce homo. Behold the man. Pilate expects this vision of this bruised and beaten and pulverized body to awaken a sense of mercy and a sense of decency and a declaration of humanity. Certainly these good and decent citizens would call for his release. And there is Jesus. And Paul, and I'm sure that, that Pontius Pilate had no idea how impressive his words would be throughout the generations. Here is the man, the man as God intended a human being to be, inhabited by God, a perfect man, an innocent man, a righteous man, being treated by fallen men. One Bible teacher wrote, here sin in all of its ugliness and all and holiness in all of its beauty. This is Jesus at his worst. And Jesus at his worst. As a caricature is still better than every man at his best. Every person in every age, in every circumstance, Jesus at his worst is still better. And I suspect at this point, this is where Pilate calls for the basin and washes his hands and speaks the words, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 and 25, it records the, the response of the religious leaders. His blood be on us and his blood be on our children. I believe that before Jesus was actually executed, Judas went out and hung himself in despair. And it wouldn't be long before Caiaphas would lose his position as high priest. The house of Annas would be destroyed by an angry mob of Jews. His own son would be dragged through the streets. The son of Annas would be scourged and mutilated and murdered. And Jerusalem would enter into a major revolt. And literally tens of thousands of Jews would be executed. And the one that weren't mercifully executed by the sword, more than tens of thousands would be executed and they would line the streets all around the city and hang their bodies from the walls. And the Jews would be scattered. And they would be humiliated and outcast and persecuted and ostracized and scorned. 
And in verse 6 it says, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Instead of having the desired effect of mercy and pity and humility, it has the opposite effect. The figure with his face, with the crown of thorns and the mock robe draped around his shoulders, throw them into a rage. It was more than they could stand. Jesus of Nazareth, our King, Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, in spite of His goodness and in spite of His miracles and in spite of His teachings, He couldn't give them what they wanted. They want freedom. Not freedom from sin. Freedom from Rome. They want the freedom to be able to exercise their own thoughts and deeds. And Pilate is baffled. How could these people require more? What will he do? You're making a a terrible mistake if you think that the Romans were people who elevated injustice. They didn't. One of the great legal minds of Roman, ancient Roman civilization was a man named Publius Cyrus. He said, he hurts the good who spares the bad. How much worse if you arrest, persecute, prosecute, humiliate the innocent. This man isn't bad. This man is good. And Pilate is thrown into that absolute issue of indecision. What do I do? What do I do? It was popular musician and part-time philosopher Jimmy Buffett who used to say, indecision may or may not be my problem. Yeah, it all depends on how you look at it. I've met lots of people who feel like they don't have to decide about Jesus. I don't have to make a decision about Jesus. I don't have to decide whether or not he's good or bad or right or wrong. But the moment you do, the moment that you discover that he is innocent, and the moment that you discover that you're guilty, it requires that you draw a conclusion and the moment that you wickedly and perversely determine that he's just as bad as you are then you're engaging in the most dangerous kind of duplicity and self-deception that you're as good and as right 
and as innocent as Jesus. Samuel Johnson, the famous Puritan writer, said, Integrity without knowledge is weak and useless, and knowledge without integrity is dangerous and dreadful. And for the third time, Pilate renders a verdict of not guilty. I find no fault in him. And Pilate said, You take him and crucify him. As if he could shift the responsibility of killing an innocent man from his shoulders to their shoulders. You want to kill him? Fine. You do it. You want to go ahead and decide about Jesus? Fine. You do it. But that's the challenge. That's the whole reason for human existence. The whole reason of human existence boils down to the question of what you will or will not do with Jesus. But this is more than just simply a decision. We have to yield ourselves to his innocence and we have to admit our own guilt. And Pilate has tried Jesus as a man and found him not guilty. And now the religious leaders will introduce a whole new dimension into the trial of Jesus. His claims to deity. The religious leaders are thinking if Jesus isn't guilty of any Roman law, if he hasn't committed any crime worthy of death according to the Roman legal tradition, we propose that he be put to death on the grounds that he, being a man, makes himself out to be God. We can't have that. And so in verse 7 it says, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. What? What law are they making reference to? Is it actually a crime to consider yourself to be the son of God? The law that he's making reference to is found in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. And if you turn there and you make a note, you read the text in Leviticus chapter 24, 16. It says, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. That means if you're there By accident, it doesn't matter. Everyone is subject to this. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. And what does it mean to blaspheme the name of the Lord? It means to speak ill of. It means to speak wickedly, illegally, unlawfully, untruthfully. And do you remember the name? I am who I am. The name of the Lord is the self-existent one. The God who inhabits eternity. The self-existent God who has no creator. The self-existent God who created the heavens and earth. The self-existent God who brought all reality into being. 
the self-existent God who brings all reality into being. This Jesus claims to be his son in a unique and a specific way. The Jews are accusing Jesus of making the extraordinary claim of being the son of God and not the son of God like a person who just happens to be the creation of God. The Jews understand the claim of Jesus, that Jesus is, is making the statement that he is related to God in a unique and a special way. And the messages of Jesus and the repeated miracles of Jesus prove that he's the Son of God. Is it a sin and a crime to pretend you're God when you are not? The answer is yes. If for whatever foolish reason you ever woke up and you ever woke up and, and a voice whispered in your ear, you're God, then you're engaged in the most perverse and wicked self-deception possible. The wickedness and the deception continues when you think that you're free to do whatever you want with whomever you want under whatever circumstances that you find pleasing to yourself. And the message of Jesus and the repeated miracles of Jesus only cause the hard-hearted sinners to deny the evidence, ignore the evidence, refuse the evidence. And you would think, you would think, that they would think, oh, well, this is, this is the thing that will get Pilate going. Pilate is certainly convinced that the man is innocent. And if the religious leaders think Pilate's going to be persuaded with this new bit of information, it only makes matters worse. Because if, in fact, Jesus has some sort of supernatural connection with deity, this has gone from really bad to profoundly bad. It's one thing to charge an innocent man with crimes. But remember, Pontius Pilate lives in a worldview that was borrowed by the Greeks and adapted by the Romans. It wasn't unusual for the Roman people to believe that the invisible gods could interact with visible man and that, that gods and, and men would sometimes interact with each other and produce offspring. This creates a whole new set of problems. Is Jesus an ordinary man or is Jesus an extraordinary man? Does Jesus have some sort of connection to deity? Does he have godlike qualities and godlike capabilities? Pilate was born in Seville, in Spain. And as a young man, he ran away from home. And he joined the legion of Caesar. And as he joined the legion of Caesar, he made his way up through the ranks. And as he made his way up through the ranks, he would have been a soldier. And he would have been the commander of a soldier. And he would have been a person who looked at criminals and interacted with criminals. He would have peered into the eyes of liars and thieves and conmen and rebels and charlatans. there's Jesus. The thorns pressed on his brow and the robe around his lacerated back. 
and his face bloated and distended, and he opens up his eyes. And Pilate has seen atrocity and wickedness and worldliness and criminals. And he has looked into the eyes of criminals and this man is no criminal. If you've been in law enforcement for a very, very long time, you have seen so many different eyes and it doesn't take long for an officer to mistake a citizen for a criminal or a criminal for a citizen. Is it possible? Is it possible that a solid citizen can be a perverse criminal? It is possible. Is it possible that a criminal can be a solid citizen? Not usually. Do officers have a pretty good way and do they acquire a certain distinct capability of telling the criminal from the citizen it is true? But this is absurd. God in Galilee? There's an urgent message. And it's from Pilate's wife. He remembers the urgent message. I've had a dream about this man. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. And Jesus is taken into the private audience chamber. And in verse 9, he went, goes again into the praetorium and he says to Jesus, Where are you from? This is the perfect time. Jesus has already told his own disciples, Hey, look. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hey, look, I am not just a simple person who was born in Bethlehem, although I was born in Bethlehem of a virgin. Um, he's already told his disciples that he came from heaven and that he came with a message from God. And the message from God is you are loved and you are cared about and there is a God who cares about you even in your wicked and lost condition, even in the circumstances that you find yourself in. And in order to authenticate the message, he repeatedly embraces all kinds of miracles. This is the perfect time for Jesus to say all of that information and he doesn't. He doesn't answer him. Why not? Jesus has already told him in chapter eight, 18, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom it were of this world. My servants would fight so that I shouldn't be delivered to the Jews. My kingdom isn't from here. He asks the question about truth. You say rightly that I'm a king for this cause. I was born and for this cause I've come into the world. I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. But Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with the truth. And if the Lord has spoken to you and told you the truth, doesn't it make perfect sense that he is not going to give you more truth when you've already rejected the truth that he's already given you? Pilate has already heard and Pilate refuses to believe what he has already heard Jesus told him the truth. 
there's no room for the truth. Because Pilate has already rejected the truth. Then Pilate said to him in verse 10, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to release you? His boast is going to become his own sentence of guilt and his own personal condemnation. Pilate is a human being with human powers. Pilate has been placed in the position of procurator of Judea by Tiberius, Caesar. He has authority like other human has authority. Jesus has the power of God. Jesus has been given the position by God. God is supreme. Human beings have power, but only the power that God gives to them. Do you have the ability to crucify Jesus? Do you have the power to release him? Really, Pilate? Do you have that power? If you really have that power, if you really have the power to let him go, if you know that he's innocent and you've already said so in chapter 18 and you've said two more times in chapter 19, he's innocent, then why won't you let him go? Pilate is still responsible before God for the choice that he makes. R. Kent Hughes writes, Jesus is the free man. Power resided with him, not with Pilate. Jesus alone could do exactly what he pleased. Pilate wanted to release Jesus in the worst way. But he couldn't. If ever a man was caught and crushed like a helpless doll on the wheel of life, it was Pilate. You might be sitting there thinking, I have the ability to do whatever I want to do. And it's true. But God's given you that ability. It was the living Lord of heaven who placed you on this planet. It was the living Lord of heaven who gave you your mother and your father in the circumstances in which you grew up in. It is the living Lord of heaven who gave you the ability to think and the ability to choose and the ability to respond. It was the living Lord of heaven who gave you the ability to choose or choose otherwise, to accept or reject, to think and respond. A lot of people think that they can do with Jesus whatever they want to do. And so they reinvent him. They make him into something that that the Bible doesn't say that he is. Former participant in the Jesus Seminar, so-called scholar Robert W. Funk maintains the fiction that Jesus was only a man, an ordinary man. He writes, and I quote, What we need is a new fiction. We need a new narrative of Jesus, a new gospel, if you will, that places Jesus differently in the grand scheme of the epic story and the new fiction and the new narrative and the new gospel that he proposes is that Jesus is an ordinary man and that you're ordinary people and whatever prohibitions or restrictions that the Bible places on you it isn't real 
your sin isn't real and your circumstances don't require a Savior. And in verse 11 it says, Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. What's he talking about? Is he talking about Judas's betrayal into the hands of the religious leaders? Is he talking about the religious leaders' betrayal of Jesus into the hands of the Romans? It could be both. But whatever the answer is, Jesus says, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Oh, by the way, it is a sin. And make no mistake about it. To try a man for crimes in the position of judge and find the guilty innocent and to find the innocent guilty is a caricature of justice and the sundial cast its shadow on the third watch it's nine o'clock in the morning and once again Pilate takes his seat in the courtyard of the palace and in verse 12 it says from then on Pilate sought to release him but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. This is crass, political blackmail. The emperor Tiberius lived like a recluse on the Isle of Capri. Let me give you just a little idea of who he is. Some of you are old enough to remember a billionaire named Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes led an amazing life accumulated massive amounts of money, and then he went into hiding. And Tiberius had impressive wealth, and he had visions that people were out to get him, and that everyone wanted to hurt him and kill him. And so he isolated himself on the island of Capri, and he lived alone, surrounding himself only with the people he could Trust and any hint of unfaithfulness meant Caesar's wrath. And if Pilate could be found guilty of disloyalty to Caesar, if word could get back to him that Pilate let a dangerous, seditious, wicked, and evil person go who would stand in the place of Caesar, there would literally be hell to pay. And in verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement in the praetorium. And on the grounds was the place where judicial rulings took place. And it was called in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, which means the stone pavement. It was the place where justice was rendered. Isn't it interesting? In verse 14 it says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
John reminds the reader it's Passover Eve and and Jesus is crucified under Pontius Pilate on the eve of the Jewish Passover. And we can't artificially divorce the Jesus of history from the Jesus of faith and that this final rejection takes place in the sixth hour on the Passover Eve. And John wants the reader to understand what is happening because on the Temple Mount, the gates are open and the sheep have been lined up and the process of evaluation and examination begins at the at that hour at at the sixth hour the sheep make their way through the gate to the priest for examination and he wants you to know that this isn't some cosmic coincidence that the God who created the heavens and the earth orchestrated everything to happen at exactly this specific moment and that the irony wasn't lost on anyone who understood Old Testament reality. And anyone who had ever heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't it interesting that this lamb is also a king? And in John's gospel, he's already told us that all authority and all judgment has been given over to Jesus. And just like Pilate is on the pavement getting ready to render his decision, he has no idea or at least some small idea that the man that he is about to judge will one day judge him. And you may think that you have the ability to decide for Jesus. But you really only have one choice, and that's to yield to him or defy him. To accept him or reject him. And you will accept him or you will reject him. But no matter what you choose, there will come a day where you will meet your king face to face. And in verse 15 it says, But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Over and over again, the Lord God had reminded the religious authorities and the people of Israel that he was the sovereign Lord of the nation in Judges chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 12. You'll remember in John chapter 6, verse 15, the Jews wanted to crown Jesus king. In chapter 12, verse 13, they hail him as king. But he threatens their security and their livelihood and their honor. And he can't be allowed to continue to exist. And so they order him crucified. The religious sentiment of the religious leaders had everything to do with the religious sentiment of Pilate. Both of them loved material wealth. Both of them loved power. Both of them loved position. Both of them loved pleasure. Both of them loved celebrity status. Both were thrown onto the stream of human history and traveled down the current of God's ultimate plan and God's ultimate purpose was 
Pilate's Roman paganism different from the Jews' religious monotheism? How can their religions be so different if they've come to exactly the same conclusion about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, my religion is different. Make no mistake about it. Whatever religion you embrace, if your religion rejects Jesus as the innocent Savior who comes to die on the cross for your sins, beware. Both had their minds set on earthly things, Philippians 3.19. Both were slaves to sin, Romans 6.17. And both declared that Caesar was their king. There's a Latin saying, justice is the foundations of kingdoms. Paul told the Corinthians that some of them used to be sinners, but they were washed and they were sanctified and they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Romans 3.22, it says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, Justice and power must be brought together so that whatever is just may be powerful and whatever is powerful may be just. There's only one person who is both just and powerful. God. In God's justice, He sees the truth about you. And in God's power, He can bring justice to pass. If ever there was a time that you said, Thank you, Jesus, for love. Thank you, Jesus, for faith. Thank you, Jesus, for hope. Remember when Paul was writing, he said, These three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. He didn't say justice, faith, and hope, and love. You should cry out and go, Oh God, you mean there's a chance for me? That's exactly what that means. In a perfect world, the innocent are set free and the guilty are condemned. In an imperfect world, the innocent is condemned and the guilty can go free. That's what Paul meant when he said the just or the unjust. The just becomes sin so that the unjust can be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray for every man and every woman within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that they will ask this question. What will I do with Jesus? Because if I declare that he's innocent, then I must of necessity declare that I'm guilty. And if I declare that he's guilty, 
then I must of necessity put forth the fiction that I'm somehow innocent. That my wickedness and my sin and my pride have an important place in God's economy. But Lord, we know nothing could be further from the truth. Our wickedness is reprehensible and our sin is vile. And that Jesus embraces what we deserve. And he opens not his mouth. Because sin, there's no justification for it. There's nothing that you can say or I can say to justify our sin. All it deserves is punishment. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would move on hearts. Lord, I pray that each and every person within the sound of my voice would pray that prayer, that, he, that you would, we would cry out to you. That we would confess our sin and our guilt, our wickedness and our pride, and the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is innocent and that we are guilty. And that we can embrace Him for who He is and love Him and serve Him and declare that He is our King and our Lord and that we could experience forgiveness of sin and the promise of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.